Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Karen Hobart Flynn, president of Common Cause, who discusses her group's campaign for Senate passage of the For the People Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, as well as strategies for overcoming the Republican filibuster. Francesca Emanuel a Peruvian sociologist and columnist who talks about Peru's June 6 presidential election in the apparent victory of teacher, campesino, and union leader Pedro Castillo, and Joe Galen with the group Stop Solitary Connecticut, who explains the provisions in a historic bill that substantially limits the time incarcerated individuals can be held in solitary confinement. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Four months after being deposed by a military coup, Myanmar's former civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, was put on trial. She faces seven charges and decades in prison. The charges include illegally importing walkie-talkies for her security guards, violating COVID-19 guidelines while campaigning, and corruption and violation of the colonial-era Official Secrets Act. Human Rights Watch called the closed-door trial bogus and politically motivated. Since the military coup ousted Suu Kyi's popularly elected National League for Democracy Party government, over 850 civilians, including 58 children, have been killed. Over 48,000 people were detained, and 200,000 displaced. Meanwhile, long-running battles with ethnic militias have spiked. Southeast Asian leaders have failed to exert enough pressure on the military to restore democracy or gain the release of hundreds of detainees. The junta has claimed it will hold new elections within the next year or two, but the country's military has a long history of promising elections and not following through. The army ruled Myanmar for 50 years after a coup in 1962 and kept Suu Kyi under house arrest for 15 years after a failed 1988 popular uprising. Four years before he became New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio called for more accountability for police and new powers for the Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB, which monitors police conduct. De Blasio ran and won as a progressive candidate in 2013, pledging to end stop-and-frisk and other abusive police tactics. However, according to internal communications obtained by ProPublica and interviews with more than two dozen current and former officials, de Blasio ended up asserting ever more control over the CCRB, intent on avoiding conflict with New York City's powerful police department. The mayor's office was found to have edited reports and testimony to soften criticism of the NYPD and also rolled back proposals for more effective oversight. The CCRB maneuvered to block some of the same policies de Blasio had for many years personally advocated. And when CCRB officials were faced with obstruction by the NYPD, the mayor's office ignored their pleas for support. Maya Wiley, now a progressive New York City mayoral candidate, served as de Blasio's counsel and chairperson of the CCRB, 
According to ProPublica, Wiley cooperated with City Hall on revising reports. Indigenous groups in northern Wisconsin and Michigan have waged a successful campaign to defend the Menominee River from a proposed open-pit gold mine. The project, known as the Back 40 Mine, was initially approved by Michigan officials, but the permit was later revoked by an administrative judge in January. The mining site was located on original Menominee Nation tribal land, whose sacred place of origin lies at the mouth of the river. In These Times magazine reports that the mine and its runoff would have a devastating impact on the spawning grounds for Lake Sturgeon, a cultural and spiritual resource for the Menominee people. The campaign against the mine was a collaborative effort of activists among Michigan's Menominee Nation and the Mole Lake Saukau Gun Chippewa tribe. These tribes had earlier cooperated together on stopping a project proposed by Badger Minerals and succeeded in protecting the traditional harvesting of wild rice. The tribes had received training and technical assistance from the Native Organizers Alliance in their campaign to stop the Back 40 mine. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On June 22nd, Senate Democratic leaders called for a test vote in an attempt to advance the For the People Act legislation that, most importantly, would stop the new wave of Republican voter suppression bills across the country. The measure would also expand ballot access, reduce the influence of money in politics, and limit partisan gerrymandering. As expected, Senate Republicans invoked the filibuster, essentially killing debate on the legislation. While polls have found that the For the People Act has strong bipartisan support nationally, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell opposes it, charging that the bill is a Democratic power grab. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, 389 GOP voter suppression bills have been introduced in 48 states, 22 of which have become law in 14 states. One senator whose vote is critical to the passage of any legislation in the 50-50 Senate is West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. Manchin, who is opposed to elements of the For the People Act, has released an outline of a pared-down version of the bill. While he's also opposed to abolishing the filibuster, he's indicated he may be open to reforming it. Your reporter spoke with Karen Hobart Flynn, president of Common Cause, who discusses her group's campaign supporting Senate passage of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, as well as strategies for overcoming the GOP filibuster. When Joe Manchin came out to talk about different pieces of the package that he supported, he talked about banning partisan gerrymandering, making Election Day a public holiday, mandating at least 15 days of early voting, automatic voter registration, absentee ballots, and many other pieces. And uh, many on the Capitol see, you know, Joe Manchin is one of many senators, 100 senators. It's the first foray into a discussion about what should be included in the package. 
actually Senator Sinema in Arizona is a co-sponsor of the For the People Act. So we're not concerned about elements of the package for Senator Sinema. Both Senators Sinema and Manchin have talked about concerns around eliminating the filibuster. But one of the interesting things is that um, Manchin has talked about being open to reform of Senate rules, like allowing a talking filibuster. So, you know, one of the challenges with the filibuster as it has grown, uh, as Mitch McConnell has sort of taken advantage of it and continued to use it to block and try and, you know, eliminate most of what President Obama did during his administration, trying to block Joe Biden's reforms that he might want to pass. They have used the threat of a filibuster where 41 senators say that they're not going to support the bill, so don't bring it up. Um, You know, many, many years ago, we used to have a talking filibuster, if anybody has seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and that is requiring those who want to block action to actually take the floor and hold the floor to debate the issue and not cede the floor. And so Joe Manchin has talked about being open to moving and shifting that balance um, back to those who are going to filibuster and require them to hold the floor in order to block action. People can't do that forever. And after that debate, and there has been an ample discussion of an issue, then you can move it forward. He's also talked about being willing to look at issues that sort of switch how many senators are required to overcome a filibuster. Back in, I think, 1975, it was 67 votes. That threshold was lowered to 60. And one of the things we've heard from the Intercept article and other talk on the Hill is that he'd be willing to look at, you know, maybe 55. So there is an opening to be looking at other possibilities. It may not be eliminating the filibuster altogether, but it could be amending some rules so that critical reforms, voting reforms like the For the People Act, as well as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to move forward. So we see this as a very positive sign. I thought it was a positive development that Georgia democracy activist Stacey Abrams, the former gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, who's got a large following and has certainly made her mark on politics in Georgia, Mm -hmm. basically came out in support of the Pared Down for the People Act that was proposed by Joe Manchin. How do you think the rest of the country should respond to this compromise uh, position that Joe Manchin has uh, put out there? The outline that Joe Manchin put out was just that, an outline, and there's a lot that is not clear in what he's put forward. So, you know, details will matter. And I think Stacey Abrams in her interview said this is a great start and, you know, something that we can work with. And I, I really agree with that. I believe that over the coming weeks, we will see senators debating what those pieces will look like. I expect to see continued negotiations around this over the coming weeks. And it's important that we see this move before the end of the summer. On the issue of gerrymandering, we will see data come out for states to start drawing their district lines probably by mid-August. We know that there are many states ready to pass highly partisan rigged district lines that will silence black and brown voters' voices in their democracy 
for the next decade. And so the stakes, I believe, are very high. The challenge is we have seen so many Republicans move so far to the right that we are not talking about democracy anymore. We are talking about a coordinated effort to block and silence people's voices in their elections. You know, use whatever means possible, whether it's disinformation or lies, whether it's vote suppression or racial and partisan gerrymandering, or whether it is stripping the power of those that could certify the vote. What we are talking about is the kind of thing that we see dictators and authoritarian regimes take up, and it is a huge danger to our democracy and one that people are understanding, and we are seeing more people engage because of the very threat we face. This is going to be the summer of mobilizations. We are continuing to organize and um, get people revved up to be fighting for their rights. So it's, it is both exciting to see because so much of what people have had to do was over the phone, online, and other things because of COVID. But um, this will be the summer of democracy mobilizations all over the country, and I hope that your listeners will think about engaging. It doesn't matter if you're in Connecticut, New York, or other places where you see some reforms moving. The fact is there are things that you could be doing right now. That was Karen Hobart Flynn, president of Common Cause. For more analysis and commentary on the efforts to stop Republican voter suppression, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Two weeks after Peru's June 6 presidential election, no winner has been officially declared. But with 100% of the vote counted, leftist candidate of the Free Peru Party, Pedro Castillo, had 50.12% of the vote, an advantage of some 44,000 votes over his far-right rival Keiko Fujimori, daughter of imprisoned former Peruvian dictator Alberto Fujimori. Castillo, a 51-year-old son of peasant farmers, former teacher and union leader, has pledged to renegotiate contracts with foreign mining companies to mandate 70% of their profits remain in the country, and says he'll dedicate 20% of Peru's gross domestic product to funding health care and education. Fujimori, who faces corruption charges, has made unsubstantiated claims of large-scale election fraud, challenging 500,000 votes calling for half those ballots to be annulled. Her charges forced Peru's National Jury of Elections to re-examine ballots, despite the lack of evidence of wrongdoing. Rival demonstrations by supporters of each candidate have increased tensions, and there's growing fear of a military coup. Your reporter spoke with Francesca Emanuel, a Peruvian sociologist and columnist who was an observer of the June 6th election. Here she talks about the apparent winner, Pedro Castillo, and Fujimori's attempt to overturn the election. This is a historic election for Peru and for the region and actually for the world. Uh, everything shows that Peruvians have elected for the first time in its history since the country became a republic 200 years ago, a president who comes from the working class. And his name is Pedro Castillo. He is 51 years old, and he worked for, uh, as a school teacher for 24 years in his town in northern Peru, Puna. So Castillo has not only seen poverty up close, but has experienced it. 
he's aware that although Peru has been one of the countries that has grown the most economically in the region in the last 50 years, that growth uh, has remained only in a few hands. So he's aware that Peru's economic policy model must be transformed. He wants to redraft the Constitution to replace the current uh, one approved in 1993 under the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori. Actually, I was living in Peru then. And this is a Constitution that was made by 80 members of the elite and a Constitution that provides the framework uh, for one of the wildest and cruel experiments of neoliberalism in the region. Recently, we've seen that Peru is the country that has the highest rate and death uh, as a result of COVID-19. More than 180,000 people have died. So Castillo wants to sharply hike taxes on mining, fight corporate income tax avoidance, and he wants to more than triple the budget for public education and increase the spending in public health. The public health system is in shambles. And he talked also about nationalizing strategic resources like natural gas. Keiko Fujimori, who's the daughter of the former president or dictator of Peru, who's now in prison. She's an extreme right candidate. After the vote, she charged that there was election fraud, and there's been a delay in announcing the election winner. Tell us a bit about the situation on the ground right now in terms of the declaration of a winner. Yeah, so as you said, everything indicates that Castillo will be the winner of these presidential elections in Peru. He has an advantage of around 50,000 votes at this point against his opponent, Keiko Fujimori. Uh, More than 99% of the votes have been counted. Uh, But as you mentioned, his opponent, Keiko Fujimori, has alleged electoral fraud without offering any concrete proof uh, for her claim. And she has tried to annul annul some votes uh, with no luck uh, because, as I said, there is no evidence of fraud. International organizations that observe the elections, such as the Organization of American States and the European Union, have said that these elections were transparent and with no evidence of fraud. But despite this, Keiko has been able to hold up the official confirmation of the results. She requested the electoral institutions in Peru to conduct an audit of the electronic transfer of votes. Her strategy is similar to what we saw here in the United States with Donald Trump. She is creating a fraud narrative and polarizing even more the country. Uh, She wants to destabilize Castillo's government so he can run in his presidency, or he could even be impeached by Congress if she exacerbates the mood in in the country and the mood of the elites, especially, as she's doing right now. And she will try to delay uh, the announcement of the victory, of Castillo's victory, as much as she can. We have to see that for her, these elections are very important. Otherwise, she will end up in prison, and many members of her party as well. Keiko is the daughter of the former Peruvian dictator, as you said, Alberto Fujimori. Keiko became the leader of his party when her father was put in prison for 25 years. Uh, And for the past 15 months, Keiko has been under investigation for money laundering and for financing his party with bribes. 
The investigation I mentioned continues, and the public prosecutor of Peru has requested a sentence of 30 years for her, for Keiko Fujimori. That was Francesca Emanuel, a Peruvian sociologist and columnist. Find more news and commentary on Peru's June 6 presidential election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The Connecticut legislature recently passed historic legislation that, if signed by Governor Ned Lamont, would greatly decrease the time incarcerated individuals can be held in solitary confinement, which goes by many names, including administrative segregation. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture condemned Connecticut's practices as a state-sanctioned policy aimed at purposefully inflicting severe pain or suffering that may well amount to torture. The UN defines solitary confinement as torture after 15 days, but this legislation mandates that except in certain cases, all incarcerated people must be allowed to leave their cell at least six and a half hours daily. Although both New York and New Jersey have recently passed laws limiting the use of solitary, the Connecticut bill known as the PROTECT Act goes much further. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Joe Galen, who serves as staff support for the group Stop Solitary Connecticut, which has been working on this issue since 2019. Here he talks about restrictions on the use of solitary confinement included in the bill and some of the elements that were stripped out during the legislative process. We wrote it to be both aspirational but as humanity-affirming as possible. And that's really the theory that we came into which is we're going to ask for exactly how the system needs to be transformed. And we pretty much kept that line throughout the whole session. There were a few minor compromises that were made in the Senate in order to get the bill through. So what did you ask for in the bill? So there's a lot in this bill. You could call it an anti-solitary confinement bill. You could also kind of call it a transformational omnibus prison bill. That is where we are coming to the table here, which is we have a different vision for what the culture of correction should look like for what we're talking about when we're saying you have to lock people in a cell and throw away the key. That's what the state has been kind of towing as the party line for many years. And our perspective is that absolutely needs to change. And one way to do that is to codify it in legislation. It's not the end of the road because you can have something in statute and the DOC doesn't live up to that. We, we've seen that it, with the current solitary confinement regulations. Children are not supposed to be in long-term isolation, and we know that is not true, and that the DOC continues to isolate children. So it's a good first step. And there's a number of provisions. I'm going to go over them. The first, and I think the most obvious relate to actual solitary confinement and isolation, this bill guarantees about six and a half hours out of cell across the board. So whether or not you are in restrictive housing or you're in general population, six and a half hours out of cell will be a right under most circumstances. There are a few exceptions and there's a little bit of a delayed implementation here, but that's one of the major keys to the bill. Another important piece here is that 
it generally allows only 72 hours or three days for the maximum amount of time that someone is allowed to be in prolonged isolation. And so that is a really major change, especially regarding what currently exists because there was no protection. So nationally, there are some other protections like this. A lot of them are 15 days. So three days is helping us lead the way to have a much more pro-social and humane correctional system. There are a number of other provisions in the bill as well. One is around the correction ombuds, which we moved from the Department of Correction to the Office of Government Accountability, and we actually expanded. And so there's going to be a lot of new power that this office has to actually oversee and hold the Department of Correction accountable. And it's for the first time not going to be a DOC line item in the budget, which gives it necessary externality. Uh, the bill would also ban certain forms of of restraints, which are extraordinarily abusive, and allow access to um, visitation and mailing as a right rather than a privilege. So it can't just get taken away whimsically whenever the DOC says, we need to punish you. What about a provision to provide trauma care for correction officers? Wasn't that part of it? We had a provision in the bill that would have extended workers' compensation for people who worked in the Department of Correction, which is still a good idea. You should be treating and addressing people's trauma, whether or not they are living or working in the prisons. That was just dealt with in a separate piece of legislation, so it was actually not necessary in our bill. You know, similarly in our bill, what was taken out is we had a provision that said close Northern Correctional Institution, which for people who don't know, that's Connecticut's sole supermax facility, which we actually closed through advocacy outside of the legislative process. Joe Galen, another member of Stop Solitary Connecticut, was less positive about the closure of the Supermax prison. She said the men were just moved to another prison where they are held in isolation. We know that people have been transferred out of Northern and that the administrative segregation programs, the other forms of restrictive housing, there are many, many different names by which it is referred to, those are also going to still ex exist. And we've heard really devastating reports from people on the inside that the conditions at Northern are being replicated in other places. And so while this is a big win, while it is great to have had so much legislative success, unless we stay vigilant, the conditions will just be replicated in other facilities. And that is a devastating reality. Another thing that got cut was a community advisory board to the ombuds. Yeah, there were a number of changes that happened pretty early on in the process to get the bill out of committee. One of those was eliminating the community advisory board for the correction ombuds. That's also something which is really upsetting to us because you can have oversight through the correction ombuds, but unless there's a certain level of community accountability, you know, to what extent are you going to be able to use that information? And to what extent are you able to actually open up the closed prison environment to the public? The reality is this means that the fight doesn't end because there are a number of changes that are needed. That was Joe Galen of the group Stop Solitary Connecticut. Learn more about efforts to end or reduce solitary confinement in prisons by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.